moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Cascading Leadership, the show. We are here for another episode, and we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different than our typical show. Today, we are doing a special episode, and the topic of the episode is going to be talent attraction, retention, and development in clinical healthcare. So this is going to be a panel discussion, and we wanted to do something a little bit different and a little bit more targeted at a specific audience that has some challenges that we want to deal with. And... I'm your host, Jim Kay. Who else do we have on the show? You have the other host. Hello, Lawrence Brown. And even though you're familiar with myself and Lawrence, we appreciate your support. We haven't even been out for more than a couple of weeks and we're approaching 130 downloads. So that's a big deal for us, but we're not, uh, we're not an established show. So hopefully each episode at some point will be getting hundreds of downloads and we rule the world and all that sort of stuff. With that being said, I think it's important for us to intro our panelists. And today we have two great panelists that are going to be joining us in the discussion. First, we have Adam Chandler. Adam, go ahead and tell us all about your movies and your background and all that sort of stuff. And putting with a hockey stick, right? You only get that every day. But it's a, it's a great name to have. It's a great icebreaker, especially in this business when you're dealing with, with people all day. I just wish I had all those zeros in Adam Sandler's paycheck. Yeah. For what it's worth, I was a big fan of Hubie Halloween. There you go. I have yet to see it, but I'll put it in queue. Maybe after inventing Anna. Cool. Yeah. Jim, thanks so much for the invite. As Jim mentioned, my name is Adam Chandler. I am the Director of Learning and Development and Talent Acquisition at an organization called the VNA Health Group, which is the second largest independent home health and hospice organization in the country. We provide home health and hospice services in three states, New Jersey, where we're headquartered, Northeast Ohio, where I know one of our other panelists is based, Cleveland area, and South Florida. As far as my background goes, close to 20 years or around 20 years, I never thought I'd ever get to the point in my life where I'd say I did 20 years of anything, but it, it has happened. But I've been in HR in some permutation of the healthcare space. I was in generic pharma, big pharma, medical devices, managed healthcare. Before that, I was in radio, but eventually wanted to move out of my parents' basement because there's only so long you could stare at a Jim Morrison blacklight for the rest of your life. So went on and found a career where I could monetize a little bit more. Certification-wise, organizational development coach and a certified master facilitator. Great to be here. You left something really important out, Adam. You are also a podcast. Oh, I'm a podcast. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I, I could be a shill and also plug my podcast, which is called Bad to the Dad. In our seventh season, close to 100 episodes where we interview dads of all walks of life. And I can only hope, Jim, in your busy schedule that you make time for us 
in season number seven. Yeah, I, cool. I, I think it's going to be awesome. LB is a dad as well. So oh, uh, we got to exchange numbers after this. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, Adam. LB, who else do we have on here? Other guest is Scott Galanos. Scott, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you found your Yeah, I appreciate it, LB. I don't have the luxury of having a celebrity kind of name to, to get some callbacks, but um, you got my last name right. Uh, usually I get Galanos or my history teacher used to say Mr. Galapagos. We're at least starting off on the right foot there. So Scott Galanos, I am from Northeast Ohio and I work for a group called Addison Group that's based out of Chicago. I'm actually celebrating my 10 year anniversary this June, which, which I'm proud of. And during that time, I've had the pleasure of opening four offices in Denver, Phoenix, Charlotte, and most recently, our focus is healthcare staffing consulting with healthcare organizations. We help candidates find careers. We solve problems for different healthcare organizations across the country. To give you a little bit of insight on just some numbers, since the pandemic, we've met as a group with 17,000 healthcare leaders, and we've placed 10,000 candidates in multiple positions across the country. We're hard at work during the COVID era and just trying to help candidates and clients alike. Just a quick show note for those in the audience. Scott is a big fan of quote unquote America's team, the Cleveland Browns, but you have Adam and uh, I who are big fans of the J-E-T-S Jets. Jets, yes, yes. long suffering. Yes, long suffering. And you know what? To make it even worse, I'm also a Bears fan, which is dual uh, conference yeah. suffering. I, I guess misery loves company. Adam, you and I got to hang out. Um, yeah, I, wasn't, I wasn't even going to acknowledge the Bears, but I, I guess <laughs> they're, they're, they're my team. We've always been deemed a mistake on the lake ever since I was a kid. And I thought there'd be some hope when the Browns made the playoffs last year. And then we missed them this year. And we turned into what the kids are calling a dumpster fire. So I'm not sure if. <laughs> We'll make it back, but the Cavs are on the up and up. I could easily turn this into a sports talk radio show, but <laughs> that's not really why we're here. Full disclosure, Scott and I actually work together briefly at Addison Group. I have a thing for companies that are either green or blue in terms of logos. So uh, you can follow my trajectory there. I would strongly encourage anyone that is listening to the show to reach out to Adam and to Scott and obviously LB and I on LinkedIn and network. We are here to help in however we can advance your career and your businesses. So that's the whole purpose of the show in general. So with all that being said, I want to set the stage here. Everybody's heard about the resignation, the great rethink, the great reshuffle, whatever the phrase is for the week. And the solutions for that in most other sectors seem to be pretty uniform. If you cater to the employee, if you cater to what's important in terms of work-life balance and flexibility and all that sort of stuff, you can solve a lot of your problems. And the fact that we have to say that out loud is interesting in and of itself. But when you're dealing with the clinical and non-clinical healthcare space, which is a space that both Scott and Adam serve, you can't have hybrid work as a solution. You can't have the standard solutions apply because these are in, in general frontline or frontline adjacent folks that don't have the option of flexible work. So one of the things that we want to accomplish in this conversation is spell out the voice of the candidate 
and map out for clients who are struggling with all of the same talent challenges that every other client is struggling with, uh, a, a way to machine their process and make their roles in their organizations much more appealing. And then once you bring the people in, have a defined pathway to retain and develop them. So that's the big, hairy, ugly goal. And we're not going to solve it in one conversation, but that's why we're all here. A good place for all of us to start the conversation is let's really take some time to understand what are the candidates that you're dealing with saying? What are you hearing from the people that you serve in terms of what they're looking for in their next job? I'll hand it off to Adam. So Jim, you're right. There is this thing called the great resignation. I don't want to deny or ignore that because we've been the victims of it, even at our own organization, people planning, leaving, finding other ways to put food on the table, but they're, they're tired. Uh, and I think COVID had a lot to do with that. There's uh, an exit effect that starts with a few. And as a few leave, all that work has to be piled on to somebody else. And next thing you're in our space, a home health nurse who went from four visits a day to eight visits a day. And then you got to get home and do your documentation. And I don't want to get into the ugly details. I'm just trying to give you the, the day in the life of what our critical mass is going through. So the resignation is happening. And people, I think, are looking for just a break, a lifestyle where they don't have to get up every morning and it's Groundhog Day and go through you know the same heavy lifting. But I think what we're seeing more of is not so much resignation, but the great need for flexibility. Because there is still a mass population of clinicians, at least in, in our space, that loves taking care of patients. They love nursing. They love social work. They love physical therapy. They love being a home health aide, but they want to do it on their own terms. So one solution that we're experimenting with, and we actually started it in Scott's Universe in Northeast Ohio, is this marketing program called We Get It. And for those of you who are children of the 80s, like myself, you might remember the old Burger King campaign, Have It Your Way. You want a hamburger with pickles and lettuce and tomato and cheese, the works, you can have it. If you just want a hamburger with onions, you can have it. So where am I going with this from a, a candidate retention perspective? So the We Get It program really speaks to the sensibilities of what's going on in the world of a clinician. We get it that you have to work and put food on the table, but you also want to be available at three o'clock for your kid's soccer game. You want to be able to take a break between 12 and 1.30 or 12 and 2 and take care of that elderly parent. You want to be at the spelling bees, the dance recitals, etc. So we have come up with a work format where we'll accept that. We would rather have somebody work a part-time or schedule hybrid type of position than not hire a talented clinician at all and not be able to, because every time we have a patient who says, I need a nurse and we can't provide that, we can't bill. And obviously our revenue stream is cut off. So if you want to work five days a week, but only from 830 to one, we'll take you. If you can only work three days a week and you can only work six hours a day, we'll take it. So that's been successful. Uh, we started the seeds of that in the early goings of COVID. And now we're making it a thing because it looks like this need for more flexibility is here to stay. So again, we've started experimenting with that. It's looking pretty good. And if you have me back on in a couple of months, I could tell you if uh, it's a program that's been sustained. That is a great observation, Adam. I think that's going to have some pretty big legs because part of my research way back when I was doing retention and turnover studies, especially in clinical healthcare, 
nursing has atrocious retention outcomes. And there are a lot of reasons for it, but I think, I think you might be on some gold there as far as how that flexibility applied to clinical might actually solve a lot of problems that nurses are dealing with. The, The timing of this interview is actually timely. And then I was just on a webinar with the Gallup organization yesterday, and they had done a study of retention from 2019 to the present. And they had discovered that the turnover rate among healthcare workers who are suffering, who are dealing with stress, who are looking for well-being was 31%, 22% for all other industries, but 31% for the healthcare industry, which we find quite staggering. I was going to say that it is staggering, but I think it's actually not really surprising when you look at Mm -hmm. all that, the clinical side of the house is what they have to go through in terms of engaging with all of the issues that we've heard about over the last, and it's hard to believe, what, two and a half years now uh, or more. Scott, from a non-clinical healthcare standpoint, what is it that you're seeing and how have you been impacted by the great resignation from the the perspective of the folks in your industry? I I, want to also just piggyback off because something Adam had mentioned, retention and turnover costs could be a whole nother episode, right? Gallup has done studies where most companies have about 26% turnover rate and it can cost anywhere between one half to two thirds salary to replace that person. So a hundred person organization can be anywhere between 700,000 to 2.3 million in turnover costs. So hopefully some of these points that we're talking about here can, can help with some retention. COVID impacted us surprisingly in a negative way in a lot of our healthcare clients as well. We were expecting when the pandemic hit that healthcare organizations would need more staff. And because of the restrictions that COVID had in place with not allowing a certain amount of people in a certain space and things like that, elective surgeries and just simple procedures were put on hold. Therefore, a lot of furloughs, a lot of layoffs happened within healthcare organizations across the nation. And then when we brought people back in, the vaccine mandates as well, had some layoffs too. So as companies are starting to ramp back up, we're seeing them become more and more flexible regarding simple things. If you can't change the pay and offer a super high pay rate, we're looking at companies that are offering remote work, whether that's 100% remote, hybrid remote, one day a week in the office, And a a lot of organizations that have been reluctant to move in that direction, let's say a year or a year and a half ago, they're moving to that now and they're attracting more talent now than ever. While still increasing some of those pay rates, while looking at different things that you can add into a job post to attract some talent. So I think there's a lot of things you can do in a non-clinical perspective that will allow you to be competitive and attract that talent. That's a good lay of the land as far as what both uh, Adam and Scott have laid out. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of clinical and non-clinical healthcare. What I do know, and what a lot of people may not realize, is that people in these spaces are given sort of a, a rock and a hard place choice. You have to choose between your livelihood or your life, depending on the circumstances. Scott and Adam, how are you seeing candidates being impacted by that choice? Because that I can't relate to that choice. Hey, you can either choose to provide for your family or you can choose to put your life on the line and die. And I'm not being dramatic, but that's the truth. No, you're right. 
What have you heard from candidates in terms of grappling and how they get over making that decision? It's a real thing. And I think it needs to be, if it isn't on the, on the radar of clients, it certainly needs to be because that's the choice that some clients or all clients are, are having their people make when they have these hard and fast rules that have no flexibility. I think in my space, so when I say non-clinical, it's a lot of medical scheduling, medical billers, collectors. Those are the candidates that, that I'm working with. What they're seeing is that they, they can find a job anywhere, really. They're not just applying to a local organization, let's say in Cleveland. They can apply to hundreds of organizations across the nation that offer remote work. They're looking at what's in it for me. It is a candidate-driven market. My skill set is sought after. What job descriptions are going to offer company perks, flexible schedules, a good pay raise? Those are going to be some of the hot buttons that candidates are are wanting. In my- Those are really good points, Scott. And I totally echo the what's in it for me. My favorite radio station, right? WIIFM. You could advertise that you're an award-winning organization, right? And you're Gallup best in class this, and you're one of the great places to work that. But while everybody likes waving that banner and and joining a winner, at the end of the day, it's what are you going to put on their table? Most of our non-clinical positions are remote, and you have the flexibility to come into an office if you want, but you have to adhere to all the protocols. You have to be vaccinated. Now you have to be boosted, and you have to wear a mask. As far as the provisions, what's the gold, right? What are the gems for a, a candidate to be attracted to our organization? I think one of the centerpieces is education. And we have a tuition reimbursement program of $12,000 a year, which I find competitive even in the private sector. We're a nonprofit and we're making this big investment in education. And that's not just in a matriculating academic program, it's also in professional development, CE credits, things like that. And we position that as a competitive advantage. We have the most educated, most up-to-date clinical workforce or non-clinical workforce that might make a patient or one of our joint ventures want to refer us as a home health aid option versus another organization. The other thing I, I want to bring up, and Jin, you nailed it. It's my life or my livelihood. One of the questions we're hearing more frequently in the battery of questions that candidates ask is, how am I going to be protected when I go into a person's home to to provide direct patient care? Now, I'll take you back to March, April of 2020, when our patients were saying, please don't come to my house. I don't want whatever gunk you're bringing from somebody's house into mine and getting us sick. So we heard that loud and clear. And we essentially put the business on pause. Some other of our competitors not only went on pause, but they went completely dark. But we saw this as an opportunity. And yes, we lobbied the federal government for PPE and we got it. But we also realized that it's an opportunity to become the home health aid organization that provides patient care in the COVID era. So whether a patient is suffering from COVID or they just need a regular visit, we want to be the ones that are prepared to make those visits. So we do gown up, we mask up, we shield up, we glove up. We provide training on not just how to take care of a COVID patient, but how to work with their family. How do you use compassion and clinical skills in order to make this a more marketable visit and make us a more marketable organization? There's so much talk around infection control. Anything you bring into the home and put down on the couch has a possibility for spreading infection. 
So we came up with this creative mode of a two-nurse system, which we used fairly regularly during the height of COVID, where one nurse would go in fully gowned up. They'd bring in nothing except their clinical skills and knowledge and their warm and sunny dispositions. And there'd be another nurse in the car taking dictation in the EMR system on their tablet. So the nurse didn't have to pick up something and put it back down in in a patient's home. There were some creative and very enterprising ways we were able to keep the business alive. But at the center of all that was, do we have all of the right materials and resources, to borrow a Gallup term, to keep our clinicians safe when they went in the home and and our patients as well? As I was thinking about what you were both saying, is that this is, I can't remember the term that you use, but from a corporate standpoint, it's innovation all day long. Adaptation was the term I think you used. And so that adaptation based off of what both Scott and Adam have talked about, it's really remarkable because Jim's question at the top was the impact for your actual employees. And so you think about how you've answered the call in terms of what some of the concerns were for both employees and in Adam, your instance, with the patients as well, and that being an important element. Do you think that would have occurred if it were not for COVID? Has that accelerated this perspective? When when I was talking to Jim uh, last week, I just got done reading a book called Think Again by Adam Grant. And it talks about people or companies that they do things because it's always the way that um, it's been done. And, And that's just where they're stuck at. And so now we're in this great rethink and great revamp. And COVID was an accelerator for a lot of companies. It's just not healthcare. It's every industry. How are we hiring? How are we attracting talent? And more importantly, how are we retaining that talent as well? From a personal perspective at Addison, we became a flexible hybrid workshop and it's our employee reviews have skyrocketed. Our retention has skyrocketed. So I, I see it in my own company and with companies that I work with that shift happened and it was accelerated because of the pandemic. There was some benefit to the pandemic. Let's face it, the, the, the pandemic stunk. I'm sure that everyone on this call knew somebody who was affected, maybe had a family member who was laid out. Uh, I know I, I lost friends who had passed away due to COVID, especially in the early going. So uh, a whole lot of negative around COVID. When you look at the history of work and what it's done for work, I agree with Scott. You know, again, all of our non-clinicians went hybrid or mostly remote. So from a productivity standpoint, we're probably getting two extra hours out of them a day, which turns the needle sometimes the other way because it, it's hard to shut it off and you're working a little later into the evening or a little earlier in the day. But I think people enjoy that trade-off in that they would rather have a little more time at home, be able to do laundry, pick up their kids from school then have to come up with other alternative resources. And I think people, at least from what we hear in our pulse surveys, at least on the non-clinical based at home side, is that they're okay not having that line of demarcation of, all right, I leave home, I go to a place for about eight hours, I leave it at work, and then I come back home. I think people are finding that Without a lot of oversight, they're able to come up with their own workday construct that works for them. They're going to they're gonna respond to emails and, and texts when they want to. As long as there's nothing terribly emergent, they'll get the job done. So I think as long as you create a culture that is empowering and allows people that flexibility to carve out parts of their day to take care of personal things, then 
we've reached a, a real level of comfort. I would agree with you. I've managed uh, remote teams since 2007, and there's just been all of what I talk to people are like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And there's this myth that when people are working remote, there's this thing about like they're off partying or whatever. And what I found was the research that I had done for the company that I was working for when I initially um, joined that company was that the productivity was generally higher, much higher for those that were working remote. And Adam, it speaks to what you were saying. I don't know if it's instinctively, but people generally will work more. They're on a little bit longer. And so you have to be careful with that. But the trade-off oftentimes is that, to your point, they feel more comfortable about that flexibility that they have. So it doesn't, that break in the eight-hour day gives them a sense of where you can take a deep breath and you can get things done and, and focus in on what's important to you while getting your job done. That's a really good observation. And I want to piggyback on a few things that Adam and, and, and Scott have said. I came in to this show with the thought process that the challenges that clinical healthcare and non-clinical healthcare has to solve are going to be somewhat unique to that space. And I haven't gotten off of that, but there's something that Adam said, hey, candidates, and Scott, you referenced this too, candidates are always going to be looking at what's in it for me. And that's universal across any sector. This is a leadership. So when we look at hey, if we're in a hiring position, we always need to be clear about how does this role that we have within our organization advance the objective or the mission of that candidate that we're in front of. So that's going to be a communication point that everybody needs to be in line with. The other thing that's that's interesting to your point, Adam, was about the productivity component. So I've primarily spent a lot of my time on the staffing side in IT. And throughout the Great Recession and COVID and all that sort of stuff, the conversation that I got from my managers or from my hiring managers was that we lifted and shifted into remote and our people have never been more productive. They've actually been actually 20, 30, 40% more productive than they were when we were on site. And that hints at something when you look at the question of, do you trust your people to do the job or do you not trust your people to do the job? Because I forgot who it was that mentioned it, but somebody in this panel said, we can't have remote because people are going to be out on the golf course or, or screwing around. And that simply hasn't happened. And I think that's an important point to call out because, pardon my language, but we're all grown ass adults. And what we're looking at is how do we integrate our work and our lives in a way that's as seamless as possible that accounts for everything. And the organizations that actually do that are going to be the ones that benefit from it. And that's the common thread is that organizations that effectively allow for the integration of work and life into the employment landscape are going to be the ones that benefit from the shift that's happened. Am I off base or is that in line with what you guys are seeing, Adam and Scott? Question to both of you. I think trust is a huge factor, right? You were spot on. We're all adults and I'm going to hire and trust that everyone has the same goal, on whether it's a day-to-day, a weekly or quarterly goal. And we have to treat our employees with trust and with, and with respect and, and therefore give them that flexibility. And I think specifically within healthcare, it's a women-driven industry. And we're talking about having mat leave and childcare and things of that nature. And if you're offering candidates in my world, 
remote job and they're able to go to and from daycare. They're able to take care of what they need from home. You give them the flexibility. That's going to set you apart from other organizations that are requiring you to be on site nine to five every day. I agree with you, Scott. And I personally think because I'm a learning guy, but I'm also a talent acquisition guy. It starts with hiring. We can't continue to treat people, regardless of their discipline, like they're commodities. When there's a job opening, it's staffing, right? There's a difference between staffing and recruiting. Staffing is somebody's off the street, they're available, you hire them. There's no vetting process. With recruiting, and this is a, a culture that we're working on, and I, I think we've established quite nicely, we're vetting candidates for things like response, going above and beyond, managing your own, your time management, managing your own calendar, managing your own responsibilities, because that's so front and center in being a clinician in the field, and it's so front and center in being a self-governing employee at home. So if you can vet that out and your candidates are sincere, you've got a good thing going. So we spend a lot of time on that. Maybe we spend a little bit too much time trying to understand the hardwiring of our candidates, but we make that investment on the front end because we don't want to be dealing with retention issues and things that we didn't see as red flags now all of a sudden surface later in the game. You touched on this whole idea of trust. And I'm curious to know what feedback have you gotten since this shift has occurred from candidates that in turn become employees? What would you say are some of those ways in which you help to build that trust? As a young leader, I've had to make mistakes. I've had to fail and I had to be open to being vulnerable about things that maybe I've done incorrect in the past and learn from those. So I think just setting expectations with the team, being vulnerable, being open and on communication on what your expectations are, being available. I think all of those things can create an atmosphere where you're trusting the employee. And that would go on to not micromanage the employee because then you're coming off as if you don't trust them. So I think it starts with the leaders and how they're operating with their teams and how they're communicating with their teams. I was like a Scott once, had a lot of leadership stumbles. I know my, my first throws in, into leadership, I would raise my voice and drop a lot of F-bombs thinking that that would motivate my people. And it certainly didn't. I, I think it actually got worse, their their performance. And then I made a lot of assumptions and, and foisted a lot of what I thought were were the best practices instead of reaching out to people who are now my coaches and mentors. So I agree with Scott. I, I certainly coach. I certainly do a lot of communication. I spend a lot of time with my team. I have a coaching format that is more of a dialogue than a monologue because I, I really want them to you know, own their own development. I want them to own their own desks, if you will. But in any of the meetings or constructs and the culture of my departments, it is player coach. I want to give everybody the opportunity to be able to contribute. Taking that a step further in hearing the feedback of our employees at large, one, one miss I think we've had since we've shifted to a new work style in the pandemic is how we onboard and communicate our employees. And we're talking about retention. It is so important to get this right from the beginning. We actually had our head of uh, data analytics and quality do a presentation about our retention for nurses from 2019 to the present. Numbers weren't great. They were a little embarrassing. But as a talent acquisition team, we felt we were doing everything in our power to upsell the position, create a good onboarding experience. And what happened was when we passed them off to the managers, were so busy 
and so blind to the investment that they needed to make in making sure that their new employees were off to the right foot, on the right foot, that we found a real retention gap, especially in that first 90-day to you know, maybe first 120-day window. So that was a call to action for us. This is good from a leadership perspective. Listen to your employees, trust the data. It's like the rearview mirror. It doesn't lie. It's inf- information that you can use to, to create action. So we're developing a VNA university for frontline managers. And the very first module we are teaching is what does the manager need to do or the delegates or the team in order to create a winning first 90-day experience. And it actually begins way before day one. That communication has to happen at least a couple of weeks before the new hires start. Great learning for us. And uh, this is something that we're implementing and hoping that we could see a data a turnaround in that data. That's a great analysis. And when you talk about the, uh, the onboarding, it's interesting how you loop back to the acquisition aspect of that as well. I felt like I was reading your mind because I think that sometimes organizations lose sight of how critical onboarding is. And so HR does their air quotes, they do their part, but that handoff becomes critical because it has to be clear what the step throughs are. And then actually now you have this manager that's going to take on that onboarding, but is also pressed for outcomes. At the same time, we're trying to bring somebody along and We'll get that later and and later never happens. Adam, great point on the onboarding component. There's a ton of data that we're all aware of that talks about the the more effective your onboarding experience is, the better your retention outcomes. And if you're full out nerd like me and LB, you can go and look at the journal articles. Most people aren't. Just take my word for it. I want to take a step back real quick and pose this to Scott. I want to talk about the acquisition component. If you're looking at getting the right talent, whatever that looks like for your organization. Scott, what advice do you have for clients in terms of what they need to do from a blocking and tackling perspective to get the best candidates on the marketplace? Because I think that's a big gap. So what what, what insight do you have on what they should be doing to more effectively find the right talent for their positions? I wish I had the, the magic one-liner that would open up the floodgates for talent for all of the organizations. But I, I think the days of finding the, the perfect candidate are over, right? For a few reasons. The market's tight and you really want to hire somebody maybe at 80, 90%. So they have a little bit of room to grow. But to attract them, it, it starts at the job post, in my opinion. I, I, I Going back to the onboarding piece, I'm thinking of a couple of clients that I work with and some of their job posts. They outline specific requirements that you actually need to have to perform the duties of the job. There's not 100 bullet points where someone's going to be deterred from applying And then we can get into a whole nother aspect of how DEI initiatives are failing because someone's looking at crazy job description and they're already counting themselves out because no one has a hundred requirements. And that blocks a lot of applicants coming through HR through your applicant tracking systems. So back to this job description, it was five or six bullet points. It outlined a day-to-day. It outlined the interview process, the onboarding process, what the first 90 days look like, the first six months look like, and then perks of why you should work at this company. I thought it was well-written. They have no issues really attracting talent. And the, the specific company was Sprout Social too, where they they outlined a lot of this in there. And I thought it was just, I, I thought it was 
really unique because they they broke out three, six, 12, the type of team they'd be on. And that's where I think the innovation piece comes in too, where we talked about that earlier, circling back to that is being innovative and being able to be creative to attract some of this talent from your job post and then being able to streamline the hiring process and communication to get them in the door. You just referenced a company that I'm a huge fan of, but if organizations are looking for a template of how they tie in mission, vision, values, and outcomes to their position descriptions, they need to steal like every single thing that Sprout Social does because they're a tech unicorn that does it. Three out of four of us have spent some time in staffing and we've seen what a typical job description looks like. It's 120 bullets of mundane crap that doesn't mean anything. And more often than not, it's six roles in one and 30% below market in terms of what they want to pay for it. So you're already stacking the deck against your outcomes. And I think, Scott, to your point, if you want to make sure that you have the best candidates in the marketplace applying to your job, focus on outcomes, streamline your positions, talk about what you're trying to accomplish as an organization. Now, that might work for non-clinical healthcare I, I want to shift to Adam and see, how, is that doable for the clinical side? How do you attract a bigger candidate pool for the clinical space? Yeah, I just want to pick up on Scott's discussion of the job description and how important that is because you know, there's a lot of competition out there. There's a lot of home health agencies, but there's also a lot of healthcare organizations that are looking for the same people that we're looking for. So it's important to differentiate. And I think there's no harm in a little storytelling in your job descriptions and using a little good humor, right? Entertaining your candidates. So one example I'll give you, and this is not a terribly original thought. It's something that I actually borrowed from Lou Adler, who is the author of Hire With Your Head. Jim, from Lou, I've seen him speak. I've had dinner with this guy. He's a real guru when it comes to attracting talent. And he is the, he's the oracle of of the anti-boring job description. Wants everyone to write something a little more entertaining. He actually encourages encourages you to write a performance profile versus a job description, but still be entertaining to get that hook. One of the examples he provided that I had actually used in a few of the companies in my past lives is this voice where you're actually speaking from the future. And it's the year, well, now it's already 2022. The year is 2025. And we want to thank you for everything that you've done in this position. You have helped increase our referrals by X. You saw X amount of patients. You got us this award and that award. You helped to recruit X number of people. So you're putting the parlance of what the job is into a story that has this almost sci-fi element to it, but you're still positioning a, a role in a very exciting and enthusiastic way. So I think it's important that you you try to find ways to differentiate yourself. You get creative. Just because we're clinical, just because we're highly regulated, does not mean that we have to have stale job descriptions, to Scott's point, that have 100 bullet points that will never be achieved, especially in the course of a year, because there's just not enough hours in the day, and human beings can conceivably achieve everything that's being asked in that wish list. So I think that creativity is important, but I also think you have to, you have to hustle. You've got to push those messages out. The post and pray days are gone. You, you got to be out there. And I think one way that's been effective for us is, is doing it digitally and, and doing those text ads and, and email blasts. As a marketer to, to my heart, 
went through and and probably I am the anomaly of what Jim was describing as you all three haven't been in uh, staffing and acquisition. I also look at it this way when I'm looking at posts when I was in the market and I actually looked for the ones that were more streamlined, that were more straightforward. I think, Adam, to what you're saying, it does stand out because what you have to remember is that no matter what you're putting out there as a job description, you're telling a story and that is an absolute opportunity to begin that journey with going from prospective candidate to a hire. It's about that story and it's about the, it's about the marketing that you recognize. And more companies that are, are, are savvy about that, if, if you scour LinkedIn and you look at some of the ones that will give you pause as you're reading them, are the ones that are doing what you had said, Adam. And to Scott, what you were saying was, was that how it's more streamlined, it's getting to the nuts and bolts of what you need. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to pull away the critical elements. That's just what you talk about. You talk about the critical elements as opposed to all these things that will push people away in a market where there's just extreme demand and where, quite frankly, the, the candidate is in the driver's seat. One thing that I want to tie together, and, and this goes right to what Scott was saying, we've all worked with great leaders in our careers. And what do the most effective leaders or maybe the most inspirational leaders do really well? They point a vision for success. So if you're looking at the talent strategy and how you solve that for an organization, whoever's involved in that process, their job descriptions should be pointing a vision for success on what's in it for the candidate that gets this job. How is this going to advance the ball or, or move the needle for you in advancing your career? That's the tie-in that stood out as soon as Scott mentioned it, as soon as Adam was talking about it. If we take the job description as a leadership competency, you should be painting a picture of what success looks like in execution. And Adam, to your point, it's a good thing that nobody that's listening to this can see the chat. I totally went fanboy as soon as you mentioned Lou, Ad <laughs> Lou Adler. Quite, he's quite a luminary, but since we're nerding out and sharing books, I subscribe to the Bible known as The Leadership Challenge by Kuzis and Posner, which it's such a great book for foundational leadership. It was written by two professors of leadership at Santa Clara University back in 1983. They had done hundreds of interviews, thousands of case studies, broke it down into the best leaders have five practices of exemplary leadership. Not to go into massive detail, one of those practices is inspire a shared vision, right? So get the buy-in, get something that people will want to be a part of. If you're an organization that doesn't have necessarily the capital to offer big raises, at least you're providing an adventure. You're providing a career journey that will, as you say, Jim, help to edify, move the dial for the employee so they can grow and they can get stronger in their career and they can ultimately lead or do whatever they aspire to. Thanks, Adam. You just added another book to the six that I'm reading concurrently right now. So my wife is going to give me a beating because I'm just running up the Kindle charges on Amazon. Scott, I want to come back to you and close the loop on the talent attraction side of it. You talked about some of the things a, a position description needs to look like in order to maximize the applicant traffic. What else needs to be there from a process perspective, a company perspective, a role perspective to make sure that you're getting the best available or the best candidates, not just the best available candidates, because there is a difference. What are things that companies need to look at in incorporating into their position descriptions to get that velocity that they need and get the vo volume that they need? I think that's a good question. And, and a lot of companies are probably asking themselves that question. 
from my perspective, sometimes less is more. When we have these lengthy descriptions, it's not only deterring the candidate, but then you're look, then there's a human error because you have a talent acquisition recruiter or someone in HR that is looking at a resume and looking at this long job description. And if the two aren't adding up, they're not even calling the candidate. So I think less is more. So that way, some of those points in that job description translate to the candidate's resume. Outlining a a goal of the job, right? So something measurable would be helpful. Adding in pay rates. A lot of states have now passed laws where you have to include the pay rate. So that is going to be something to look at, especially if it's competitive. Just some of those perks. Do you offer remote? What type of PTO package? 401k? Do you do potlucks? Are there team outings? Things that are going to set you apart from not only the competitor down the street, but you're competing nationwide these days. So if you can, some of the stuff Adam was talking about, maybe putting some humor in there, being innovative to catch someone's eye, those are going to be where the applicants go. Jim had talked at the top of the hour about what our show is and, and what we hope to accomplish. And so one of the questions that I have is from your vantage points, right, as leaders and being in the talent acquisition space, and this is not necessarily the question is not necessarily just in this space, but as leaders in this space, what advice would you give for to candidates? So we've talked a little bit about on the on the firm side of things. But at things that you've seen, what would probably be maybe one or two things that stands out that would be a benefit to prospective uh, candidates? I think in, in our space, if the company does their homework on the organization, understands our history to the theme we just spoke about, understands the mission, I think that's important. But I would say be bold and ask a series of questions of their managers of what is this relationship going to look like? Here's what I bring to the table as a candidate, but as a manager, Am I just filling a job or is there a partnership here? Are you hiring me for the job or are you hiring me for the next three to four jobs down the line? Am I going to be coming in here just using the skills I already know or is there a pathway to develop new skills? And on the other side of the coin, LB, I would say coach your managers to ask your candidates, how do they want to grow? What does development look like for them? You know, every time we bring in a new hire, yes, we go over the job description. We want to make sure that they understand the priorities of the role, but we also do goal setting, uh, selfish goal setting in a good way. We want to know what the candidate wants in order to make the opportunity more engaging. So how do we weave that into the meshwork of the day-to-day responsibilities of the job? Yeah, that's a nugget. I really appreciate that. The lead time that you gain from asking that question as a manager, dials you right into what are the motivating factors for that prospective candidate and what hopefully will be an employee. I'm not going to torture Jim. That's Marshall Goldsmith, the uh, six (laughs) questions, six uh, coaching questions. It's another book, but save it for after you read the leadership challenge. He's writing it down as we speak. (laughs) I know. I can only imagine Jim's notebook right now. I'm like five seconds away from channeling my inner ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. There's only probably 10% of the audience that even catches that reference. I think on the candidate side, keep track of where you're applying. I think that's always important for follow-up. You can connect with some of these individuals on LinkedIn and start a conversation through the messenger there. You can attend networking events where some of these hiring managers or leaders might be. Really, you want to set yourself apart as much as the client should set themselves apart because you want to be that standout applicant. On the organizational side, I think during the interview, 
outlining expectations for onboarding and how you're going to train and develop this individual management style. As much as we're interviewing the candidate, we've talked about how tight the market is. The candidate is interviewing and we need to be able to sell ourselves as leaders and sell our organizations. So when they do get multiple offers, we're at the top of the list. That's a monster point there, Scott. One of the objectives of cascading leadership in general is to build common ground to move forward. While the healthcare and non-clinical healthcare space is a little bit different as far as a sector, a lot of the things that you're pointing out, there's a lot of common ground there that is transferable to any other industry. And I think one of the things that, that you both are talking about is the fundamental shift that has occurred in the employee-employer relationship the CEO of Gravity Payments. Dan Price talks about this all the time. And Scott and Adam are hinting right at the same thing within your spaces. The employee-employer relationship has fundamentally shifted to the point where it is more of an equal footing. And that's crucial because now employees finally have a voice on what that relationship looks like. And independent of the sector that you're in, it's not out of the realm of acceptable behavior to really tie into what does your personal professional vision look like and what does that look like in an organization that you want to work for. And those organizations that best tie those things together are the ones that that are going to win. So the old ways of thinking, sorry, I'm soapboxing. I'm totally soapboxing here. The old ways of thinking of, hey, you're just a cog in the wheel and you just check in and you're at the whims of whatever we say is acceptable are done. So I think what I'm gathering from both you and Adam is that if employers are thinking that way, they're in for a world of hurt. Am I off base in that analysis? Jim, I think employers still need to have standards, right? They should still have, I don't want to use the word profile because that puts people in a box. They should have competencies. They should have a vision of what a good employee looks like. And I think that that needs to hold true. While it's a quote unquote candidate's market, good talent has options. I, I still think that the top employers with the best reputations they can also be a little select about the people that they hire. But you use the word, it's equal footing. I think that the candidate has to take on the mantle of responsibility of doing their homework and presenting well and showcasing all the skills that they have to be a qualified candidate. And I think there's also an onus on the hiring entity to maintain that level of achievement and greatness and desirability because it, it one thing to have open jobs, it's another to have open jobs and be a best-in-class organization. And maybe that's a little too high and mighty, but I think you get the drift of the theme there. A absolutely. I, I think that's fair. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I think it's really in a nerd area for both Lawrence and I and especially me. So maybe not as much Lawrence. I could talk about this stuff for hours. I want to thank both Adam and Scott for being part of the panel and offering their insights. It's been a phenomenal conversation. And I wouldn't be surprised if you're going to be invited back for a deeper dive in a particular area. Before we, we sign off, I want to do an effective job of making sure that organizations and leaders within organizations who are listening to this have some key takeaways that they can implement right now. So Scott, 
when we're solving or at least attempting to solve the talent acquisition challenges that clinical and non-clinical healthcare organizations will have. What are the things that organizations should be doing to increase candidate flow and make their positions more attractive for a prospective candidate to join? There's two points that you can implement right away, like tomorrow, if you wanted to. And there's two points that may take time, right? On the latter piece, if you can have those hybrid schedules and offer remote that's just the way the workforce is shifting, especially in non-clinical healthcare. Increasing pay rates and sign-on bonuses, those are going to always help. Those things might take six, 12 months to implement. But things that we can do right away is maybe tweaking job descriptions, adding in some of that sizzle that's going to jump off the page to a candidate, and then selling yourself in an interview. So outlining some of those discuss in terms of onboarding, training, expectations, and the end goal of a position. Those things we can change almost immediately. And I hope whoever is listening takes away one or two things and just rethinks how they're approaching their talent acquisition and and changes some of the way that they're hiring and hopefully it helps. Thanks for sharing that, Scott. And for those that are listening, again, I, I encourage you to reach out to Scott. If you are trying to figure out an acquisition challenge, you definitely need to connect with Scott with on LinkedIn and get his advice. He'd certainly be able to steer you the right direction. Adam, from your perspective, share with us how companies can benefit from a developmental and retention side. I go back to that whole idea of the managers needing to invest in their employees. And it's not just an investment in a lot of the material items that employees get. It's certainly in time, providing as much time as you can in order to make sure that the employee is enjoying the experience. I know that management is hard. You've got your day job, but part of that day job is taking care of your employees. And I think there's tons of research out there that indicates that no one has greater impact in the employee experience than the manager. I would also try to customize the experience. Don't make it cookie cutter. Don't put your employees in the same box as others if it's not going to engage them and if it's not going to hit their own personal and professional goals. If you have some sort of education system in place, whether it's tuition reimbursement, whether it's in-house learning with a learning and development group, whether your employees can go out and fetch that information externally with learning programs, mentorship, coaches. That is only going to enhance the employee experience. And again, speak to that what's in it for me, but not in that in that arena of greed or, or perceived greed about show me the money, give me a bonus, give me a fat match on my 401k, but take care of me. Help me grow. Help me to cultivate my own career and do it in a partnership. So I think that's very important. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. So a couple of things that I want to key in on is that, first of all, we thank both of you because the level of expertise that you have shared with us is, is critical. And we are absolutely a leadership show. And we appreciate the leadership that you've shared. And I, I can't stress enough about reaching out to Adam on LinkedIn and, and leveraging his expertise the learning and development side, just leadership in general. I really appreciate it. And as we've talked about, and what you've heard is, is that both Adam and Scott have talked about reading, right? And so you've heard this term before, maybe you haven't, but reading is leading. That's a critical element. They've both talked about 
the importance of social and, and reaching all of us really on LinkedIn and leveraging whatever information and support that we can offer. And then I think the, the other side of it is that leveraging the knowledge that you glean from this show and what you've heard today. So just make sure that you're reaching out because that's one of the reasons that we're here. We want to make sure that we can help people move further faster. So thanks again to both Scott and Adam. Phenomenal conversation. I appreciate you sharing your insights. That wraps up this episode of Cascading Leadership. For those of you who haven't checked this out, you can find us on all of your widely available podcast platforms. We're everywhere. Hopefully this special episode offered something unique to people that are dealing with some unique challenges in clinical and non-clinical healthcare. Thanks again for the conversation. And we will catch you on the next episode of Cascading Leadership. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.